This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. I tell you, someone is trying to get into my head. You think I'm crazy? Someone is trying to get into your head. A bunch of really smart, clever, dedicated people. They are trying to get into our heads to gobble up every sliver of attention, piece by piece. That is the theme, the thesis, of a book written by a guy named Tim Wu, who's a professor at law at Columbia University in New York City. The book is called The Attention Merchants. The subtitle says it all, though. The epic scramble to get inside our heads. Wu argues that with our technology moving from what he calls the four screens, the first screen being the movie theater, the second screen being television, the third screen being laptop and computer, the fourth screen being the iPhone, that we have become more and more captured by attention merchants. And so he says we no longer live as homo sapiens, but we live as homo distractus, known for ever shorter attention spans and for compulsively checking our devices. So since 2015, when the cell phone became popular and now everybody has them, he says, whither thou goest, thy cell phone goes with thee. Someone else has said that we respond to our cell phones, our iPhones, often like an English butler. The lady or Lord rings the bell and we come. What is it, my Lord? What would you need, my lady? Rather than us, that serving us, we are the butler to our technology. Wu thinks, he says, we'd like to think we're all independent thinkers. No, I think for myself. I don't allow advertising to affect me. Nobody's getting inside my head. He says, you know who are the worst people with being susceptible to propaganda throughout history? Wu says, it's often the smartest people, the most intelligent people, the most educated people are often the people that are most susceptible to somebody else getting inside their head because they don't think anybody else is getting inside their head. Wu says, this is so important, I quote, our very lives are at stake because when we reach the end of our days, our life experience will equal what we have paid attention to. That's our life, what we pay attention to. And the very last section of the book, the the last paragraph, Wu says, we must act to make our attention our own again and to reclaim ownership of the very experience of living. Now, Wu, as far as I know, is not a Christian. He has no faith claims in the book. But when I read this book, it stirred me. It moved me. It challenged me. What or who you pay attention to, that's what your life is going to consist of. So I was reading that book, and then I was reading Matthew chapter 6 at the same time, this sermon text that you heard, the gospel text. And I was thinking, oh, my goodness, Jesus has already anticipated this epic scramble for our attention. Now, the Bible talks about the world, the flesh, and the devil trying to get into our heads, but 
Wu is talking about some of the same thing and some of this just ramped up like on steroids. And so in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus lays out two ways to live your life. Two paths. There's the inattentive path. It's noisy, it's busy, it's sometimes impressive, it's sometimes trying really hard to impress other people. And then there's the attentive life where we bring our attention to God and live attentive to Him, a deeply attentive life. In this passage, Jesus gives us a path, a way to live. Not just theories, but a way to live, a way to walk, a way to relate to the world. And He gives us, in particular, three embodied spiritual practices to recapture our attention and give it to God. Now, when you say, when you hear embodied spiritual practices, don't think of something weird. Think of something like running on a treadmill or chopping an onion or driving a car because you're using your body, but your whole mind and your whole self is engaged. It's not just in your head. So these three practices that Jesus gives us are so crucial to our lives and so crucial as we begin the journey of Lent together. I think you heard them in the passage. Giving, especially giving to the needy, praying, and fasting. Three embodied practices. Let me look at all three of them just briefly. So giving. Jesus says in verse 2, when you give to the needy. And then in verse 3 he says, when you give to the needy. He uses the word when two times for each one of these disciplines, six times in total. So Jesus is saying, not if, but when. Like, I really expect you to do these things. I expect you to incorporate these things into your life to become a regular part of your life. Not if, but when. And notice he says, not just giving in general, but when you give to the needy, the, the poor, the oppressed, the, the hungry. Jesus says, when you give to the needy, What's happening to your attention? Well, your attention is focusing on the needy, but if you're a follower of Jesus, you're also, you're also connecting that to your relationship with Jesus, and the, these hang together. Did you hear our uh, Old Testament reading from Isaiah 58? So beautiful, so stirring. And, and in that, God is telling his people, I don't want the kind of fast that you people are giving me. Because you fast and you, and you make a big deal out of it and you, you go hungry and, and, and then you turn around in your business dealings and you treat your workers horribly. You, you give them poor wages. He said, that's not the kind of fast I want. In the book of Amos, God says, I hate that kind of fast. I hate it. It's not what I want. When you give to the needy, you're giving your attention to God and to the needy at the same time. This Lent, we're going to have a wonderful opportunity together as a church family to do this in a really practical way with our Good Friday gift, which this year is focused on creating a home for orphans in northern Nigeria with Bishop and Mama Kawashi. You'll be hearing a lot more about that, so I just invite you to pay attention to that. It's a really great way to give to the needy. Let me skip down to the third one, fasting. Verse 16, when you fast... This is the third embodied practice. I'll get back to the second one in just a minute. 
But again, it assumes not if, but when. Now, fasting is not very exciting for almost anybody I've ever known. But it's really simple. I can explain fasting to you in two words. Don't eat. (laughs) In one form or another. That's fasting. That's all you got to know to get started. It's so easy. You might give up a meal once a week during Lent. You might give up a food item that you're particularly attached to, like sweets or chocolate or, heaven forbid, carbs. Some people do that. Or meat. Or you might go 24, 36 hours without eating. Now, when you're fasting, here's what will happen. Your body will complain. Like a petulant child, your body will say, what about me? What about my needs? I need some attention. And you will say, now look, stomach, appetite, body, I respect you, and I acknowledge you, and I understand where you're coming from. And under ordinary circumstances, I would respond immediately. (laughs) But given the nature of what I'm trying to do here in my relationship with God, I have to just be honest with you. I'm not going to pay attention to you right now. I'm going to pay attention to God right now. And see what happens, you're fasting, the hunger, actually be the lack, the emptiness becomes a prompt. You sort of go down into your stomach, and then it becomes a prompt to lift up your eyes and give your attention to God. Because you think, why am I hungry? Why am I not just grabbing some peanuts or a loaf of bread or some candy or some trail mix right now? Oh, because I want to give my attention to God. It's a simple way to recapture our attention and bring it to God. And it really does get your attention. So fasting throughout the Bible is is used in special times to either humble ourselves before God or um, to prepare for a special season of ministry or to enter into a time of individual or corporate repentance all throughout the Bible. And Jesus says, so not if, but when you fast. So Something to consider this Lent. When, what is the Lord calling you in terms of fasting? Now let's back up to that second one. When you pray, look at verse 6. And, and let me just read the whole thing and then just break it down a little piece by piece. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So let me look at that just phrase by phrase. And by the way, this is... This is what I'm doing. It's not like rocket science. Uh, you didn't know to, I didn't need to go to seminary to, to do this. But you can just read the words of Jesus and just take them a little phrase at a time and then just pause and pray and repeat it and ask the Lord, well, how are you speaking to me through that phrase, Lord? It's just a really simple and ancient way to read Scripture. So when you pray, not if, but when. Only you can decide to pray. Peter Kreeft, a philosopher, 
Catholic, Roman Catholic philosopher in his little wonderful little book, Beginning to Pray, he says this, the single most important piece of advice about prayer is one word, begin. And I would add begin haltingly, begin awkwardly, begin even ineptly, but begin or restart or deepen your prayer life. Then Jesus said, go into your room. Literally, it was the storeroom in the homes of people of his day. Just a, often a little room off to the side that was, it was a rustic room. It was a really ordinary room. There was nothing special about it. There was nothing particularly holy about it. It's just a little room maybe filled with some tools, some supplies, maybe a little extra food if the family had it. But it was private. You could go in there and be alone. Where is your storeroom? Do you have a storeroom, a place where you regularly meet with God? We're embodied creatures. I, I need a place like this. So for me, it's I come into my house, and you turn to the left, and there's a little, it could be a bedroom, but I've turned it into an office. That's where I go. Sit on a little wicker chair, got my little blanket for the wintertime, light a couple candles, crack open the windows. That's my storeroom. Try to get there every morning. I was talking to a young uh, mother of young children this week, and maybe you're a parent and you have young children, and she said, I can't get to the storeroom, Matt, or I would be accused of negligence with my children. But she said, I can find places and times when I just pause. I take a deep breath, take a deep breath, and I turn to the Lord, and I say, Lord, help me with this situation. Lord, help me to be patient. Or Lord, um, help me to pay attention to my children. Or help me to love my children. Or Lord, I just thank you for this day. She said, that's my storeroom. So some of us will find have to find really creative ways to get to our storeroom. Third thing Jesus said is shut the door. And I love that. So you go in, and then you take the door, and you shut it. So when you're in there, what are you doing? Now you've shut a whole bunch of things out. They're no longer part of your life. You've shut them out of your life. So I want to encourage you this Lent. What are the practices or habits or viewing habits or noises or what about your phone or email or social media or newsfeed or TV or sports that you need to shut out? True confession, so I love detective dramas. They can't be overly violent, but just something mysterious and some flawed detective who's on the dogged trail for justice and truth. And usually, the darker, the better. So I love these Scandinavian ones. I won't give you the names, because then you all want to watch them. So there's one Scandinavian one, and the detective is, he's flawed. His personal life is a mess. He drinks too much, falls asleep on his chair all the time. He's always frumpily dressed, but he gets justice in the end. And I love that. But you know, the whole worldview is just completely dark and nihilistic. No meaning, no purpose, no ultimate justice, no ultimate hope, just low-level despair. I'm thinking, after watching these shows for 90 minutes at a time, I think, why do I sometimes struggle with sort of low-level despair and cynicism sometimes? <laughs> it might be because 
of what I'm viewing. So I made a decision this Lent. I decided I'm going to cut out that Scandinavian show. And then I decided, you know, I'm going to cut out this other cop show that I really like. And then I'm going to cut out this other old detective show that I like. And then I just said, oh, what the heck? I'm just getting rid of TV for all of Lent. What do you need to shut out? I bet you have something that's a distraction that's getting into your head. And then Jesus says, pray to your Father who sees in secret. So I love this. You, you make a decision. You go into your storeroom. You shut the door. And then you're in this little room, this little space. And you go, hmm, I'm all alone now. And Jesus says, you're not alone. Your Father in heaven has been waiting for you. He's been there all the time. It's like waiting for you to show up. Jesus says, your father who sees in secret will reward you. I love that Jesus didn't just say God, which is a great word. But for Jesus' worldview, God is always a heavenly father. And what's the reward? It's being with him. That's the reward. You know, there's friends who say, you say to them, hey, let's get together. And your friend says, yeah, let's get together. And you say, yeah, we're going to do that someday. And then you leave, and you never get together. I got this illustration from my daughter, by the way. I got to give her credit. So in a sermon she gave once. And then there's friends who go, hey, let's get together. And your friend says, yeah, let's get together. And you say, let's put it on our calendar. And then you whip out your cell phone, just to prove that not all technology is always bad. And you whip out your cell phone, and you put it on your Google Calendar. There are friends like that. God is a friend like that. He's like, I got it on my calendar. I'm waiting for you. Where were you? You never showed up. Isn't that amazing? The God of the universe wants us in all of our stumblingness, all of our raggedness, all of our sinfulness. He wants to be with us. Not because he needs to, but just because he wants to. This is the overflowing life of the triune God. He wants to draw us into that community. He was seeking you before you were seeking him. God demonstrates his love toward us. The Apostle Paul said that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we did nothing to draw that out of him. We did nothing to elicit that. We did nothing to deserve it or to earn it or to work for it. It was sheer grace. He loved you before you had even thought to gaze upon him. Our friend Bishop Todd Atkinson, a good friend of Bishop Stewart's, he, he likes to say, one time in a, after he gave a sermon, I said, I, I love that part about the gospel, how grace-filled our Lord is. And he said, yes, the gospel, our Lord. It's all kind of romantic, isn't it? I thought, yeah, it is. This yearning to be with somebody, this yearning for intimacy. Let me speak a special word now to celibates as we call them here, or you might just know them as single people. 
I think so often the world, and, and I'm one of you, by the way, and I have been one of you for almost 12 years, the world wants to reduce us to what we lack. You're single. You're not a pair. You're not with anybody. You're alone. That kind of reductionism is so anti-gospel, so anti-Bible, so anti-church. Here's one thing that single celibates, here's something we have that maybe we don't want all the time, but it is something we have. And actually, the Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 7, so it's not just me. We do have more freedom to respond to the needs of the poor. We do have more freedom to go into this storeroom and be alone with the God who is seeking us. Henry Nouwen, who was a lifelong Catholic priest and celibate, he had this wonderful phrase of turning our desert of loneliness, think of a desert, loneliness, a desert of loneliness into what he called a garden of solitude. Isn't that a beautiful picture? I mean, that's true for all of us. But as a single celibate person, that especially resonated with me, to turn that desert of loneliness into a garden of solitude that's full of fruit and flowers and aromas and beauty, not just lack. So Jesus is challenging us. He's saying two questions. What devices, practices do we need to shut out of our lives as we start Lent? What embodied practices do we need to start or restart or deepen as we make this journey through Lent? And, and I will tell you one thing. As you start this, it'll be really hard because your stomach will complain. You're, you try to pray, and you'll meet all this resistance, and you'll, you'll think, I am just a really unusually bad Christian, unlike everybody else here tonight. And I will tell you, you are probably no worse than anybody else here tonight. And you may want to give up, and I would say, don't even think about doing that. Because you're just normal. But this is so important. Tim Wu said, our very lives are at stake. We need to recapture our lives. That quote stirs me, really stirs me inside. But you know what? There's a much greater power to stir us. The Lord Jesus is here to stir us as we start Lent. The Lord Jesus is here as we come to his table to receive his body and blood. His word is here to stir us. In the gospels, it's here to stir us. His desire to meet with us is to stir us. So as we begin this Lenten journey on Ash Wednesday, I want to stir you up. I want you to stir me up. I want us to stir ourselves up together for this journey. I want us to put effort into this Lenten journey of these embodied practices because they matter and because they, they're important and because we, we need to recapture our lives. So put effort into it. Be intentional. Don't coast. But also realize you're not alone. It's never a lonely journey. The church throughout the ages is with you including the saints and martyrs, that great cloud of witnesses, as it says in the book of Hebrews. The global church is with us. 
the suffering church around the globe and in Nigeria and in China and in the Sudan and in so many places. The suffering church is taking this journey with us. And even better, your heavenly Father who sees in secret, sees you in secret and is waiting to reward you. He is with you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.